Welcome to this Jeremy Bamber and White House Farm podcast season two. In this episode, we'll explore the summary of the proceedings made by the judge at Jeremy's trial. The summary was given at the conclusion of the closing arguments from the prosecution and defence. We set out how it is now known that he was responsible for not only misleading the jury prior to their deliberations, but was completely prosecution biased. The judge at Jeremy's trial was Morris Drake, who, following his service in the war as a navigator with the RAF, studied law before he joined London Chambers Quinton Hogg, known as Hailsham Chambers since 2001. Drake advanced up the legal career ladder and was appointed to the Queen's Bench Division becoming a judge in 1978. One of the first trials Drake presided over was that of four men for the murder of 13-year-old Carl Bridgewater. Carl was shot in the head at close range near Starbridge in England in 1978 whilst he was on his newspaper delivery round. The four men were Patrick Malloy, James Robinson and cousins Michael and Vincent Hickey who became known as the Bridgewater Four. In November 1978, the Hickey cousins and Robinson were found guilty of murder and Malloy guilty of manslaughter. Robinson and Vincent Hickey were sentenced to life with a recommended minimum term of 25 years. Michael Hickey aged 18, was sentenced to be detained indefinitely at Her Majesty's pleasure and Patrick Malloy received a 12-year prison sentence on his charge of manslaughter. Their convictions were overturned in 1997 and James, Michael and Vincent were released. Malloy died two years later into the sentence and so never saw justice. So the very first case Drake presided over was, as Jeremy's is, a high-profile miscarriage of justice. And Justice Drake's conduct during the Bridgewater trial attracted a great deal of criticism both before and after the convictions were overturned. It does seem a little odd that Drake would be asked to be the judge in Jeremy's case as he was not one of the regular judges used by Chelmsford Crown Court. So, who requested that he preside over Jeremy's trial? We simply don't know, but what we do know is that the judge was, by his own admission, a Freemason. In fact, he was a top-ranking member of the Royal Arch Masonic Lodge. As such, did he have a Masonic connection with senior officers involved in the investigations? Was he specially selected because he would be sympathetic and protective of the police officers, who had not only made mistakes in the investigations, but had committed now provable criminal acts to frame an innocent man. Also, did it make him more sympathetic to fellow Freemason Robert Beauflower, Jeremy's uncle, and a key prosecution witness and a major financial beneficiary of Jeremy's conviction? At the close of any trial, the judge's role is to present the jury with an unbiased summary of the prosecution and defence case. In fact, at Jeremy's trial, Drake advised the jury that his role was simply 
to give direction on the law and to give you what assistance I can upon the facts of the evidence of the case. However, in Jeremy's case, this didn't happen. In fact, in the recent Mindhouse series, Patrick O'Connor QC, a barrister with over 50 years of experience, stated that although Drake spent 10 pages summarising the evidence of Julie Mugford, he included none of the defence arguments. The summing up was in fact simply a continuance of the prosecution's biased opinions. Drake had intervened throughout the entire trial in favour of the prosecution and could easily have been mistaken as an additional prosecutor. Throughout the questions and assertions he made to witnesses and the way in which he moved the questioning on when an issue was leaning towards supporting the defence showed his bias in favour of the prosecution. In doing this, balanced arguments were not presented, and we believe this was done in order to steer the jury towards a guilty verdict, which is what Drake made very clear to the jury he thought the outcome of the trial should be. We now set out just a few examples of the misdirections and factual errors Drake supplied to the jury, which reveal that he was not content to let the jurors decide Jeremy's fate but attempted to influence them throughout. Drake's summing up, even though he stated that it would be a recap of the facts of the evidence, was actually no such thing because he introduced and reinforced a significant amount of factually incorrect data to the jury. In addition, Jeremy said that throughout, whilst discussing the prosecution evidence, Drake would look directly at the jury, speaking in an affirmative manner and nodding his head with approval on all the Crown's assertions. However, when he spoke about the defence, he acted in a completely different manner altogether, rolling his eyes, blowing through his lips as though he was bored, shaking his head and throwing his papers onto his desk and tutting. Drake also developed the habit of repeatedly using expressions such as the fanciful imaginings about the defence and saying that the defence arguments were inconceivable and irrelevant. Drake's attitude must have had an impact on the jury, as it was clear that the judge considered Jeremy to be guilty. Drake began by saying that the jury needed to consider the following questions. First of all, quite simply, do you believe Jeremy Bamber or do you believe Julie Mugford? On the facts of this case, the killer was either Sheila or Jeremy Bamber, and therefore it follows that you are sure that Sheila did not carry out the killings, it also follows that you must be sure that the defendant did so. Are you sure that Sheila did not do the killings? Of course, the question, did Sheila do the killings, involves consideration of a number of different issues which arose in the case. In order for you to arrive at your answer, and amongst those issues, one is clearly paramount, namely, was the sound moderator or silencer, as it was called during the trial, and, as I shall call it from time to time, was the sound moderator on the gun when the second and fatal shot was fired into Sheila. Was there ever any telephone call in the middle of the night from Neville Bamber to his son Jeremy the Defendant? Drake included other factors beyond these which will be highlighted later in this episode. The judge did remind the jury very briefly in a single written paragraph of Julie Mugford's involvement with checkbook fraud. He also made a great play of her going voluntarily to the bank to admit this. 
but then he influenced the jury by implying she was of good character by adding that had she not done so, this would never have come to light. He also underplayed her involvement in the burglary, saying she was merely a lookout, and although she may have acted dishonestly in the past, so had Jeremy. The judge stated that although being jilted may have caused her to lie, as the defence had argued, he reminded them that she had stuck to her story during two days on the stand, with the implication that this should carry more weight in their deliberations. He raised the issue of Julie's assertions about the hitman, saying, It can only have been a form of cover-up because he did not wish to say to Julie that he had killed his family by his own hands. And if you believe Julie, it follows that the defendant has told you lies and it follows that the defendant is guilty. This is an unbelievably prejudicial thing to say as it excuses the fact that Julie Mugford's initial story had been shown to be false and no hitman was involved. It was not for the judge to suggest reasons why this might have been so, but for the jury to decide on how it affected her truthfulness. Moving on to the other factors of the summing up, on Sheila's ability to fire and load the rifle, Drake told the jury, It is uh, certainly possible in this case for you to come to a conclusion that Sheila did not carry out the killings, on the basis that it is so overwhelmingly unlikely that she knew enough about guns and this gun to have carried out those shootings and load the magazine at least twice during the evening. This was sheer bias. It was certainly not overwhelmingly unlikely at all that Sheila did any of these things. The jury had heard Sheila did have experience with guns. They were told in witness testimony that she had been target shooting and on shooting holidays, and albeit reluctantly, David Beauflower had stated Sheila had fired a weapon in his presence on one such holiday, and he had taught her how to fire a shotgun. Drake not only failed to remind the jury of any of this, but failed to comment on the fact that she'd grown up in an environment with guns and had been around them for the majority of her life. On the telephone calls issue, Jeremy has always stated that he received a telephone call from his dad at approximately 3.15am to ask him to go to the farm as Sheila had gone crazy and had hold of one of Neville Bamber's guns. In fact, although Essex police have attempted to hide the evidence, several case documents can now prove that Neville Bamber himself called the police to advise them of his concerns about Sheila and to request assistance at 3.26am. In his summing up, Drake set out, for what conceivable reason could he invent a story that his father telephoned him and that Sheila had gone berserk and had got the gun, unless he was aware, in fact, that the family were dead and dead by his own hands? Drake could have stated the defence's alternative that this was no invention at all and that Jeremy was being truthful and had indeed received a call from his dad. But instead, Drake planted the seed that Jeremy had invented this telephone call, implicating him in the events. The judge failed to remind them of the possibility of an alternative account. In summing up the details surrounding Sheila's death, Drake could not have made his intention to influence the jury about his belief in Jeremy's guilt any clearer, as he said to them, It can be shown by quite overwhelming evidence that Sheila did not commit suicide or carry out those killings. This was pure invention by the judge, as there was, at the time of the trial, an abundance of evidence proving Sheila was responsible. In fact, Essex police 
had instructed DCI Keneally to conduct a review of the case on the 6th of September 1985 before Jeremy was even a suspect and over a year prior to the trial. According to a handwritten statement made by DSI Ainsley in 2002, Keneally's report concluded that the evidence indicates that Sheila was responsible, quite contrary to what the judge suggested to the jury. Why did Essex police never disclose this report or the evidence Keneally had relied upon to reach his conclusion pre-trial? Why was this information edited from Ainsley's typed statement? Even without that report at trial, and even if the judge had no awareness of it, there was, never had been any, overwhelming evidence that Sheila did not commit suicide or carry out the shootings. It seems obvious that by expressing his personal thoughts in this manner, he would have had a huge influence on the deliberations of the jurors. So, what was the overwhelming evidence that Sheila did not commit suicide as the judge stated? There wasn't any. All there had been at trial was a suggestion that had the sound moderator been attached to the rifle, then Sheila could not have killed herself, as we now know. No silencer was attached to the rifle or involved at any stage in the tragedies. The evidence relied upon at trial regarding blood and paint was fabricated, and of course, Essex police ensured that none of the evidence which proved Sheila was alive in the house whilst Jeremy was outside was disclosed for jury consideration. Drake made no attempt to offer the alternative defence reading of the circumstance of Sheila's death, and this was tantamount to him saying to the jury, I think that he is guilty. Drake constantly referred to the fight in the kitchen. He informed the jury that Sheila had no marks on her to indicate that she could possibly have been involved in this fight, and inferred that Jeremy could have marks on him, but no one had looked for marks on him. Drake said, she uh, bore no marks at all having been in a fight, nor, you may say, is there any evidence of any marks upon Jeremy. Of course, you must bear in mind that her body was found lying there and was examined shortly afterwards. No one examined the body of Jeremy because he was not suspected until March, much, much later. But this was not truthful. The relatives had given evidence that they had looked and observed that Jeremy had no marks on him at all. Anne Eaton's evidence, given in her 8th of September 1985 witness statement, said, I did, however, notice that Jeremy's hands were not shaking. There was no scratching whatsoever on his hands. I particularly noticed this and so did Anthony Pargeter because we mentioned it later the same day. Anne Eaton also gave further evidence about this in 1991 when she told the City of London Police, I remember taking his arm, his left arm, in mine. He had short sleeves because I remember his arm. I remember taking his arm. I had the police's words in my mind. Oh, but you might be so wrong. Was I so wrong? Well, I took his arm and comforted him in case I was so wrong. But at the same time, I had the opportunity of looking at his arm and couldn't see any obvious marks. But why did I look? In case I was right and Jeremy had done it, perhaps I'd been told there was a struggle or fight in the kitchen by now. I can't remember, but I do remember this was the first time I looked for marks on Jeremy and, incidentally, the last time. 
Is there additional evidence from Anne in her missing statements from 1985 and 1986 that have never been disclosed? Giving more detail of the lack of marks or scratches on Jeremy, we believe so. The judge had access to her 1985 statements and yet failed to advise the jury that she had testified that Jeremy had no sign of injury. In fact, of course, this supports Jeremy's innocence and the jury were entitled to know. In fact, on the 19th of September 1985, D.S. Jones was asked if he had seen any marks or scars on Jeremy when he interviewed him or if he had seen any during the many hours he'd spent with Jeremy immediately after the tragedies. Jones admitted there were no visible signs of scars, etc. Had there been, Jones, who disliked Jeremy from the outset and later admitted that he'd been looking for something to go and arrest Bam before, would certainly have reported any marks or bruises Jeremy had to link him to the events. Jones didn't do so, as Jeremy bore no scratches, bruises or marks. Drake also attempted to mislead the jury about the importance of the alleged grey hair, apparently seen by Jones and others on the silencer, found by David Beauflower in the so-called gun cupboard three days after the tragedy. Even though Beauflower and the Eatons had examined the silencer prior to it being collected by D.S. Jones, no one saw a grey hair attached to it. However, when Jones collected it on the 12th of August, a hair became attached. This hair was never subject to forensic testing and it was apparently lost prior going to the lab. In recent years, we've discovered the whereabouts of the hair sellotaped to an action sheet by Jones and it has still never been forensically examined. In his summing up, Drake referred to this hair and relied heavily on the testimony given by John Haywood that a hair could have been present if it had been in contact with Neville Bamber's head. However, any assertions made could only be speculative in nature and not evidential fact. Nevertheless, he felt motivated to misrepresent this to the jury and told them, Mr. Haywood said in cross-examination that in his view, that hair could either have come because the sound moderator had come into contact with Neville Bamber's head in the fight in the kitchen. Since that is a matter which has assumed some importance during the arguments you heard addressed to you by counsel, I will remind you perfectly what he said about that, Mr. Hayward. He then agreed that if there was a grey hair on the moderator, it suggests that the moderator came into contact with Mr. Neville Bamber's head and that could account for Neville Bamber's blood in the sound moderator. Drake clearly felt that the grey hair was evidence of a fight in the kitchen involving Neville and thereby it implicated Jeremy, because he told the jury that Sheila could not possibly have fought with her father. It is beyond belief that he pushed this one-sided theory to the jury on the basis of a hair that wasn't given in evidence and had never been forensically examined and had only appeared when discovered by D.S. Jones five days after the tragedy. Drake made it very clear that the sound moderator was the key piece of evidence and that the evidence from it on its own could convict Jeremy, as he said. Uh, the sound moderator is uh, clearly of uh, very great importance and the evidence relating to the sound moderator could, on its own, lead you to the conclusion that the defendant is uh, guilty. We know, uh, members of the jury, for it is not disputed that the sound moderator was on the gun in the kitchen while the fight with Neville Bamber was going on. But there is 
No evidence that a sound moderator was on the gun at any time. The defence did not dispute the presence of red paint in the knurling pattern of a silencer or refute the Crown's arguments regarding the presence of scratches under the mantel shelf because, at the time of the trial, they were totally unaware, as we now know, that Essex Police had fabricated the evidence on all of the issues regarding the moderator. The jury had not been made aware of the fact that two silencers had been seized, one given the reference SBJ1 for Stanley Bryan Jones on the 7th of August and the second referenced as DB1 David Bowflower, which he discovered in a dusty cardboard box at the back of the cupboard in Neville Bamber's office on the 10th of August. The jury were not told that the six forensic scientists who examined the sound moderator known as SBJ1 prior to the 25th of September did not see paint in the knurled end. It was only on this date that paint was first found impacted into the knurled pattern of the end nut of SBJ1. The jury were not told that the only photographs of the underside of the mantel shelf had been taken on the 12th of September after Essex police had taken a second paint sample on that day by methods which they have still never disclosed. It is very telling that the judge failed to allow the jury to hear all the blood evidence regarding the moderator, which will be set out shortly. It is also odd that Drake appeared to discount the involvement of a sound moderator at this time, contrary to his prior assertions, as he stated to the jury that the evidence of the red paint and the knurled mark on the mantelpiece corresponding with the knurl on the end of the gun has not been disputed in this case. Was Drake also confused about where and when red paint was apparently seen for the first time on the sound moderator SBJ1? Why did he say the paint was on the end of the gun? If he was confused in recapping the evidence, what chance did the jury have of being able to assess all the facts? Drake continued, The red paint on the knurled end and the mark on the knurled end of the mantelpiece show that uh, on the fact alone that the silencer was on the gun during the fight in the kitchen. Drake failed to distinguish which of the several marks later photographed under the mantel shelf he was referring to. Was he talking about the area of paint taken as a sample by the scenes of crimes officers in August, or was he discussing an additional area of missing paint created during the taking of an additional paint sample in September? Or was he talking about the surface scratches on the underside of the shelf? And why did he not refer back? to the lack of paint on the floor under the mantel shelf in photographs taken on the 7th of August. And again, why did he not state that paint was first seen on the sound moderator on the 25th of September? Was Drake part of the corruption in hiding the facts? We'll let you decide the answer for yourself. However, what I would like to add is the fact that by Drake presenting such misleading evidence in his summing up, the jury would have been both confused and led towards a guilty verdict. Drake used the word fact continually throughout his summing up and analysis of the court transcript reveals he used the word fact in his summary no less than 101 times. For the most part, what he stated as being fact was nothing of the sort. As this further example highlights, Drake said, uh, there are other facts that you can sort out as fairly certain, you may think. The fact 
that only three cartridge cases were found uh, in the kitchen, and Ralph Bamber had seven or eight wounds in him. I forget the exact number, but you will recall them or look them up. It certainly shows, does it not, that some of his injuries were received upstairs in the bedroom where the rest of the cartridge cases were found, and another cartridge was found at the top of the stairs. Inexcusably, Drake could not even recall how many gunshot injuries Neville had sustained, nor did he furnish the jury with what was factual, in that none of Neville's blood was found in the bedroom, the landing, the staircase, or anywhere else, except for a small area of wallpaper in the hallway leading to the kitchen. His blood is easily explained as it was present as Neville received the initial gunshot injury on the stairs, and it appeared blood may have been transferred to the wallpaper in the hallway as he made his way to the kitchen. Therefore, it's not fact that any of Neville Bamber's injuries occurred upstairs in the bedroom or the landing. What is fact is that every cartridge case found upstairs can now be associated with the gunshot injuries sustained by June, Sheila, Nicholas and Daniel. Essex police manipulated these figures for the sole reason of trying to argue that Neville would have been incapable of using the phone, doing so to undermine Jeremy's statement that he had received a telephone call from his dad at approximately 3.15am. A further example of the misuse of the word fact is when Drake told the jury the following. Uh, you will find it helpful to start by considering some of the facts which are most certainly important and which are not in dispute. There was the fight in the kitchen on the evidence you have heard, in which either the defendant or Sheila overpowered the tall and fit Neville Bamber, who was struck with the rifle in the kitchen and had the silencer attached. That is one fact you can start with. And Drake continued. Uh, another fact is that Sheila was at least rendered immediately unconscious by the second fatal wound she received, so that if the silencer was on the gun at that moment, then someone else removed it, and that someone must have been the defendant. I have reminded you of the fact, and it is a fact, that when she was found, she had no marks of blood on the soles of her feet, and no marks of having handled bullets on her hands. Yet none of this is fact at all. Photographs of Sheila clearly show she has areas of blood on her feet. And that is the subject of a podcast we did a few weeks ago, in which you also heard how Ainsley has yet again tried to obstruct justice recently on this issue. Drake also instructed the jury five separate times that the blood in the silencer came from Sheila and no one else. Yet he was fully aware that it was also an exact match for the beneficiary and prosecution witness Robert Beauflower, and yet he disallowed this evidence from being heard. This was despite the evidence being available about this key forensic finding. However, even though Mr Arledge, the prosecution QC, asked in closed court with the jury absent for Robert to be questioned about his exact blood group match in relation to the sound moderator, Drake refused to allow it. We have no doubt that had the jury known this fact, that the blood also matched 8% of the UK population, which again they were never told, then Jeremy would have been acquitted by the jury, as they were already suspicious of Robert's reasons for testifying for the prosecution and had quizzed the judge on his possible motivation in doing so. 
The jury returned to ask a question of the judge during their deliberations. They requested a recap of all the blood evidence presented and Justice Drake read the evidence of John Haywood, reiterating to the jury that the blood in the sound moderator belonged to Sheila Caffell and her alone. Just 17 minutes later, the jury returned with their verdict, guilty on five counts of murder by a 10 to 2 majority. From Justice Jake's point of view, a job well done. Drake had further misled the trial jury on issues regarding the windows. His summary was severely deficient and his direction to the jury on this issue was misleading. Drake seemingly had his own opinion about the window evidence and set out his theories to the jury when he said, uh, The kitchen windows, now that is an interesting piece of evidence. It is one in which, to some extent, you are asked to become detectives by looking at photographs of the window, closed by hand in one photograph, and then comparing it with a photograph taken a year later by the defence photographer who went down and shut the window from the outside, giving it a couple of bangs with his hand. Well, you will look at those photographs and see whether or not you think that by allowing for the fact that the window could have been banged harder, and the catch might have fallen a further quarter of an inch, and allowing for the fact that the photographs may be taken from somewhat different angles, you can reach any particular conclusion about that matter. But whatever you do, the matter of the kitchen window itself depends upon the theory that if it was the defendant who entered the house, did the killings, he went in through that particular window. Firstly, Essex police claimed Jeremy entered through the bathroom window, not the kitchen window. Additionally, in 2018, we received a photograph from Chelmsford Crown Court which shows that the kitchen window catch was, in fact, fully closed, not at an angle. The judge had this photograph at trial, so was fully aware that Essex police had manipulated the window evidence, and yet Drake still proceeded to support the Crown arguments. Likewise, no mention was made to the jury about the issue PC Barlow raised that the bottom catch, which ran horizontally along the window sill, was on its retaining peg, a position which could not have been achieved from the outside. But of course, the judge had seemingly already decided Jeremy was guilty, and therefore this would explain why he didn't immediately raise this point in Barlow's evidence in the summing up. The issues regarding the telephone calls made during the early hours of the 7th of August were vital for Drake to set out correctly to the jury, as they were Jeremy's alibi. However, yet again he presented inaccurate and incorrect evidence to the jury, saying, I shall deal with the question as to whether there was ever a telephone call from Jeremy's father to him in the middle of the night, since I have suggested to you that matter on its own could lead you to a verdict in this case one way or another. And Drake continued. If he telephoned the defendant, you may think that it is perfectly clear that he did the telephone call before he got any wounds to his face, which would have rendered him almost certainly unable to talk. So you may also think that in view of the distribution of the bullets, it would appear that he was wounded upstairs and later killed with the fatal shots in the kitchen. That would involve, would it not, him being out of bed, going down and telephoning Jeremy, then going upstairs again and becoming wounded and then coming downstairs again where he was killed. This was a scenario with no substance at all. Because how could Drake possibly know the order in which Neville 
received his injuries or the time at which they were inflicted. And, as I have already stated, we can now show Neville was not shot upstairs. Regarding the call to Julie in the middle of the night, which she and Jeremy said occurred at approximately 3.30am, Drake stated, I should add that in considering whether or not the call to Julie was before or after the telephone call to police, it would make the defendant's case in view of the prosecution evidence about the time that Julie was telephoned very much more difficult. If the true time of his telephone call to Chelmsford was the later one of 3.36, so if you take it to be 3.26, you would, in effect, be giving the defence case the benefit of the doubt. And I will suggest that you may, although it is always a matter for you, work on the timing of 3.26 as the time when the telephone call was made to the Chelmsford police station and accept that police, Constable West, quite simply made a mistake when reading the clock or writing down 3.36. It certainly wasn't giving the defence the benefit of the doubt, as the evidence available to the court clearly showed both Neville and Jeremy made a phone call to the police. Although the jury were only shown Malcolm Bonnet's radio log, which recorded a time of 3.26am, this was a trial exhibit. They were never shown the C1 log of West's recording of Jeremy's call 10 minutes later. It was never given a court exhibit number, but Drake would have access to it as it was present and shown to West when he was giving evidence. The jury were not shown it. All they saw was Bonnet's 326 log. So, why is the time that Julie received the call from Jeremy so important? Had the call to her been as Jeremy and Julie originally said in evidence, there is absolutely no way Jeremy could have been on the phone to the police at 3.26am. Therefore, this was vital for Essex Police to try to undermine, and yet they were fully aware that West had received two distinct calls, one from Neville at 3.26 and one from Jeremy at 3.36. However, this fact that proved Jeremy's innocence was hidden from the jury. In order to assist in this deception, anyone who also stated that Jeremy phoned Julie at 3.30am was undermined by Justice Drake. For example, Drake advised the jury that evidence given by Douglas Dale, who had stated the time Julie received a call from Jeremy was at 3.30am, was not to be taken into consideration as he was an unreliable witness. Perhaps the reason behind Drake doing this was that Douglas Dale's evidence supported Jeremy. But of course, we now have an abundance of evidence to show and prove two calls were made, one by Neville Bamber at 3.26am and one by Jeremy to the police. Sadly, the jury were not privy to this information. Drake was also adept at suggesting completely speculative and unproven scenarios to the jury. For example, he stated, You know how badly the father was, in fact wounded before he was killed. The jury knew nothing of the sort. There is little firm evidence to indicate that Neville Bamba received significantly disabling injuries before he was killed. Drake continued, uh, You might like to consider that the timings from the time when Jeremy telephoned the police station, if you take that to be 3.26, to the arrival of the police car at 3.48, according to Jeremy, he telephoned the police very soon after, immediately after his father had telephoned him. 
time enough only to try and telephone the father back two or three times and get the engaged stone and look up the police number in the telephone book. The interval of time between 3.26 and 3.48 is only 22 minutes. Add a little bit for trying to phone back the father and looking up the book, which would involve, would it not, an awful lot having happened in that house in that space of just 22 minutes because no one suggested that any shot was heard to be fired after the police had arrived at the house, which would involve, would it not, as I say, the father having made the telephone call, then having gone upstairs, having got wounded, having come downstairs, having a fight and having been killed. It's not known what the sequence of events was in White House Farm during the tragedy. Drake's speculation was that no shots were fired before the call Neville made to Jeremy and the police at 3.26am, and also that no shots were fired within the farm after the arrival of the first police car, CAO7. This is not fact and remains unknown, but there is no evidence to suggest either way whether any person had been shot before Neville Bamba had the chance to use the telephone. Undoubtedly, Justice Drake's action in instructing the jury that they should find Jeremy guilty, coupled with the way he recapped the defence case, shows that Drake strayed well beyond his remit to advise them on points of law. However, in the end, he got what he apparently required, a guilty verdict. If you want to lend your support to Jeremy Bamber, you can write to him in the UK using the number A5352AC. H.M. Wakefield, 5 Love Lane, Wakefield, WF2 9AG. Or see our website for details at www.jeremy-bamba.co.uk. 